Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Good morning. Um, t- <laughs> today I'll be reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 31, verses 36 through 42. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. For my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and by the cold of night. And my sleep and my sheep and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and you rebuked and rebuked you last night. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here with us uh, this morning, uh, this cold fall morning. Uh, it's a little red, wet outside, but... I'm glad you're here. Uh, So when we originally were looking through uh, Genesis and we were uh, determining uh, what we would preach, when and how and what, when we got to uh, this series on Isaac and Jacob, when we looked at chapter 29 through 31, we decided that we would just preach one story out of that. But as I was reading and studying Chapter 28 and chapter 32, Jacob meets with God both of those times. And all three of those chapters are just so important to give us a picture of what God is doing in Jacob's life. They're really a bridge from one meeting with God to the next meeting with God. So here's the deal. In the next 40-ish minutes, I'm going to preach three chapters of Genesis, okay? And we may all come to regret that at the end of this, uh, but that's just what we're going to do, okay? So uh, sit up, uh, get a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. Uh, We're just going to do this thing as best as we can do it, okay? Because I really want you to see what God is doing uh, in these 20 years in Jacob's life. Uh, So just as a caveat, due to time, I'm just going to have to preach this like you know the story. And you may know the story, and that's great if you do, but you may not know the story, uh, and that's also fine. And so if you are listening today and you're like, I feel like there are a ton of gaps in what he said. Well, yeah, you're correct, because I only have 40 minutes to do this. Uh, Then I encourage you to go home and read this section and just kind of look at your notes and think about uh, what we discussed today, and maybe that'll help uh, fill in uh, the gaps. So, 
In these three chapters, chapter 29, 30, and 31, I think that there are two major themes uh, that God is wanting us to see in the life of Jacob. Uh, And so let's talk about what those are, and then we will unpack them as we walk through uh, the story. So two major themes in the life of Jacob. The first is, nothing you do can earn God's favor on your life. And number two, nothing you do can thwart God's purposes for your life. So let's look at the first. Nothing you can do, nothing you do can earn God's favor on your life. So Jacob is really a desperate character in the book of Genesis and really the whole biblical narrative. His entire life is wrapped around this desperate need to feel loved, to feel wanted, to find approval. So think about his childhood. We've already kind of walked through that part of Jacob's life. His, he never felt for once his father's love or approval. Before he was even born, God revealed to Rebekah when she was pregnant with Jacob and Esau, these twins, this prophecy that we read in Genesis 25, 23. It says, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So God had told Isaac and Rebekah before the boys were even born that the blessing that he gave to Abraham and then to Isaac would be passed on to the second born, to Jacob. So did Isaac and Rebekah raise Jacob knowing that he was the heir to the promises of God? No, they absolutely did not. Instead, uh, they decided to pit the twins against each other. And so Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. And so when the boys grew up and Isaac was old and it was time to bless his sons, did Isaac follow the prophecy of the Lord and determine to bless Jacob? No, he called Esau in and he said, hey, go hunt game for me, cook it, bring it in, and I will bless you. And so what happened? Rebecca schemes with Jacob to lie and trick Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob. The family falls apart. And in this just chaotic, dysfunctional family mess, Isaac sends Jacob away to go find a wife from his mother's family. And so we recall Genesis 28 from last week. So uh, Jacob is passing through literally the middle of nowhere, headed to his uncle Laban, when God comes to him in a dream. And this is what God says to him in 28, starting in verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So for the very first time in Jacob's life, he hears from God himself that he is the heir, that God is going to bless him, that he is the one that's going to get the promises promised to Abraham and to Isaac. And how does Jacob respond He makes a vow to God. He says in Genesis 28, 20 and following, if God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. 
So if you were here last week or you listened to the sermon from last week, Eric told you uh, that he thinks that Jacob's vow is really sincere, that it's this major point, turning point in the life of Jacob. And I'm not going to argue against that, but I do think that Jacob is, even though his heart is beginning to turn towards the Lord, he is saying in this vow to God, he's asking God questions. He's asking, do you really have favor on me? Are you really going to do the things that you told me you were going to do? Do you love me? Do you actually want me? Are you approval? Are you approving of me as the heir of the promise that you have given my father and my grandfather. And so now we're in Genesis 29. So remember when Jacob left on this journey to go find a wife, he had nothing. When Eleazar was sent by Abraham to go find Isaac a wife, he sent Eleazar with like 10 camels and all these goods from his family. It's like the uh, Prince Ali parade in Aladdin, you know, Eleazar like comes into town with all these things. But Jacob is alone. He has absolutely nothing. He's completely penniless. And so after Jacob leaves Bethel, he continues on his journey. He comes to this well. He takes the same approach as Eleazar did. If you're looking for a wife in the Old Testament, go to the well. That's where the women are. And so lo and behold, he's at this well. He's talking to uh, the shepherds. And Rachel, the daughter of Laban, who is Jacob's uncle, who's Rebekah's uh, brother, comes to water her sheep. And Genesis 29, 9 through 12 says this. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter Rachel with his sheep, he went up and rolled the stone from the opening and watered his uncle Laban's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. He told Rachel that he was her father's relative, Rebekah's son. She ran and told her father. If you think this is love at first sight, I would uh, encourage you to think again. Uh, if you're a single man and you think this is how first dates should go, I would also encourage you to think again. Uh, this is really weird. Uh, it's, it's weird that Jacob is here and he sees Rachel and he kisses her and he like bursts into tears. Like that's not normal. That, if that's how your first date goes, it will also be your last date. Okay, so like don't, don't do that. So here's what's happening though. Jacob knows his parents' story. And he's just had this encounter with God in the middle of nowhere, and he immediately thinks that every single part of his life is going to change for the better. Not only is God going to give him all that he said he would, but here's Rachel to love. He's going to get a father-in-law to approve of him. He's overcome with joy. God is going to give him a wife, and thus he's going to give him all of these other things that he's told him he's going to give him. And so Rachel runs and tells her father. I bet, I bet she does. She has a lot to say. So enter Uncle Laban. If you think that Jacob is a deceiver, y'all, Jacob has nothing on Laban. This man is a con man from the very beginning. So look at verse 13. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then he took him to his house, and Jacob told him all that had happened. So it says he ran to meet him. Of course he did. When Eleazar came looking for uh, Rebekah, he became a very rich man uh, from that. And so he's going to run out to see what Jacob has brought for him. Uh, And Jacob tells him everything. And so begrudgingly, Laban takes him back to his household. And these two men really leave with two different perspectives. Jacob is on a high. He just met with God. He recounted the blessing uh, given to him by God. He tells uh, uh, Laban this, I'm sure. Uh, and Jacob is really convinced that this is going to happen overnight. 
In many ways, he thinks he's Midas, right? Like everything he touches is going to turn to gold. So Kent Hughes is a commentator, and he says this. From Jacob's perspective, God was directing the commerce of heaven on his behalf. And it was true and would remain true, but not as he expected. This third patriarch needed some substance. He needed some trimming. He needed a compassionate spirit. He needed to experience some pain. He needed to learn humility. He needed some added dimensions to his character. He needed to grow in faith. He needed to stop trusting in himself. So in other words, Jacob trusted God. He believed the promise that God gave him. But Jacob didn't trust anybody more than he trusted Jacob. If Jacob truly believed God was going to bless him, all signs pointed to the fact that Jacob believed he would continue to have to wrestle the blessing out of God's hands. On the other hand, Laban leaves with a mind towards negotiation and cunning. Jacob doesn't have a penny to his name, and Laban's going to work him to the bone in order to get everything out of him that he can. And so Laban convinces Jacob to stay and work to work for him, and he lets him set his wages. And so Laban has two daughters. He has an older daughter and a younger daughter. The older daughter is less than attractive. The younger daughter is beautiful. And to everyone's amazement, Jacob chooses the younger, prettier daughter to be his wages for working for seven years. So verse 19, Laban replied, better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. I mean, it's really a Hallmark movie here, y'all. So Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast that evening. Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. When morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I work for you? Why have you deceived me? Laban answered, It's not the custom in this place to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete this week of wedding celebration, and we will also give you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. And Jacob did just that. Laban, Rachel, Leah, none of them give Jacob what he's looking for. He doesn't find a better father in Laban than he had in Isaac. He doesn't actually find true love. He doesn't find acceptance. What he finds is a mess. A week ago, he thought he had found love. But here he is now with two sister wives uh, that hate each other and two maidservants who will eventually turn to concubines. And the story begs the question, where is God's favor? How is God going to extend his blessing in all of this mess? If God were to open Jacob's eyes, would he still see the gate of heaven or had it been closed off in his life? Let me assure you, the gate of heaven, Jacob's ladder, is still right there with Jacob. Where Jacob was, God was. God hadn't left Jacob. He hadn't abandoned him. Now, hear me, this is a mess, and there's a lot to work through in the story And this story and the ensuing years are fraught with sin and injustice and any number of adjectives that we could describe that would leave our heads drooping in despair. 
But Genesis 29 through 31, or 29, 31 through 30, 43 tells us exactly where God's favor lay. It was on Jacob the whole time. So here are the highlights of the end of chapter 39 through 30. We're going to go through these really quick. So 29:31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, and named him Reuben. Verse 33, she conceived again, gave birth to a son, so she named him Simeon. 34, she conceived again, gave birth to a son, his name was Levi. 35, she conceived again, gave birth to a son, she named him Judah, then Leah stopped having children. Chapter 30, verse 3, then she, that's Rachel, said, here's my maid Bilhah, go sleep with her and she'll bear children for me. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son, so she named him Dan. Verse 7, Rachel's slave Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. She named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her slave Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's, Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a son. She named him Gad. Verse 12, when Leah's, son Zilpah, or when Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a son, Leah named him Asher. Verse 16, when Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come with me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrake. So Jacob slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. She named him Issachar. Verse 19, Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. She named him Zebulun. Verse 21, Later Leah bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Thirty twenty-two. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her. He opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son, and she said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add another son to me, which he would do later on uh, in the birth of Benjamin. All in all, God would end up giving Jacob 12 sons and one daughter. This was a messed up family with a messed up sexual ethic. Rachel and Leah are in an embittered battle for Jacob's love and attention. Jacob, the patriarch, is traipsing from one tent to the next tent night after night. Rachel is seemingly directed, directing who gets who, when, and where. And we expect God to start casting people out of this story. But instead, he keeps his promises. Two patriarchs have had sons, but we're nowhere near a nation at this point. Yet here in the fields of Haran, outside of the land that God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God begins to build a nation. And God's favor rests on Jacob regardless of Jacob's actions. His actions are not right, and he is certainly not earning God's favor, but he has it. And God not only builds a nation through sons, but he blesses Jacob through riches. Let me summarize Genesis 30, 25 through 43 really quickly. Jacob wants to leave. He wants to take his wives and his children and go back to the land of his father. But Laban does a bit more cunning and convinces him to stay. And so Jacob makes a deal with Laban. He tells Laban, if you will give me all of your multicolored sheep and goats and you keep uh, all of the same color sheep and goats, uh, then I'll raise them both for you. Uh, and so then, in what can only be attributed to the Lord's favor on Jacob's life, he amasses an insane amount of wealth. Genesis thirty forty three says, And the man became very rich. He had many flocks, female and male slaves, and camels and donkeys. So God gives Jacob the beginning of a nation with 12 sons, with a daughter, and the wealth to head back to the land of his father Isaac. And Jacob almost understands what God is doing. 
So to make a long story short, in Genesis 31, Laban's sons start running their mouth, uh, saying that Jacob's riches are there because he's stolen from their father Laban, his father-in-law. And so God comes to Jacob. Uh, We're not sure how, but he tells Jacob to go back home. It's time to do that. And so Jacob sneaks his wives and his children and all of his possessions out in the night, and they head back to to his father Isaac. When Laban hears of the escape, though, he runs after him and he pursues him. Now, tucked away in Genesis 31, we just really don't have a lot of time to get into this. Rachel steals her father's household idols, and so that makes him even more mad than the fact that they left. So he's like hotly pursuing them and really mad. And so look at Genesis 31, verse 36 and following. Then Jacob became incensed and brought charges against Laban. What is my crime? He said to Laban, what is my sin that you have pursued me? You searched all of my possessions. Have you found anything of yours? Put it here before my relatives and yours and let them decide between the two of us. I've been with you these 20 years. Your ewes and female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams from your flock. I did not bring you any of the flock torn by wild beasts. I myself bore the loss." You demanded payment from me for what was stolen by day or by night. There I was, the heat consumed me by day and the frost by night, and sleep fled from my eyes. For 20 years in your household I served you. 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been with me, certainly now you would have sent me off empty-handed. But God has seen my affliction and my hard work, and he issued his verdict last night. So right there, Jacob kind of gets it, but he also kind of doesn't. There's a lot of Jacob inserted in the things that God does in his life. I have been with you for 20 years. Your ewes and goats didn't miscarry because of me. I haven't eaten from your rams or eaten the rams from your flock. I didn't bring you flocks torn by wild beasts. I bore the losses. I was consumed. Sleep fled from my eyes. I, I, I have served you. So here's the thing. That night that Jacob was in the middle of nowhere, he met with God and it changed his life but it didn't change it all at once. So I believe these three chapters of Genesis tell us that Jacob turned his face towards God that night, but his steps were very, very slow. He would come to trust God. He would come to learn that God's favor would rest on him without any of his own merit. But in the meantime, he uses every ounce of his power to wrestle the blessing out of God's hand. And he did that in a myriad of ways. The most obvious way is that he wrestled it out of Laban's hands, and he couldn't even accomplish that. Jacob worked for seven years for Rachel, and he didn't end up with her uh, or the way he wanted to. He woke up, and there was Leah. Instead of taking Leah home as his wife, he insists on taking Rachel home too, and he, uh, they bring with, him, with them Zilpah and Bilhah, and with those four women, he builds a nation of his own. Jacob worked hard at breeding sheep and goats in his favor. We didn't get into the weeds in that part of the story, but uh, as I was reading it over and over this week, I felt like I needed a biology degree to understand what was going on. Uh, So I encourage you to read that. Uh, So none of those things, though, not one thing did he do in order to earn God's favor. It already rested on him. 
God had made him a promise, and God was going to keep that promise. And believer, I want you to listen to me. Some of you in this room, I'm going to put my own self in that category over and over and over again in my life. But some of you in this room are working yourself to the bone, trying to earn God's favor in your life. Look at me. You can't do it. You cannot earn God's favor on your life. It's not earned because it's a gift. It's free. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them and our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by, na- by nature children under wrath as the others uh, were also. Believer, before you met Jesus, you were dead. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were cut off from God. We didn't have true eternal spiritual life given and sustained by God. We were in a wretched state. If you're here today and you haven't put your trust in the Lord Jesus, this is your current condition. Because of your sins, you are dead. You were cut off from God. The world will tell you differently, but the Bible says that you were cut off from God, that you were dead in your current state, that you need a miracle in your life. Believer Paul says, in our previous life, we lived according to the world. That is to say that we were controlled by the world's influences, by the world's values. Before salvation, we looked and acted and had our being in the world and the culture around us. We listened to the ruler of the world, Satan. We lived out our fleshy desires. Paul says here that we were by nature children under wrath. That is to say that we were justly under the judgment of God. But look at Ephesians 2, 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Tony Meredith says of this verse, Christian, behold your biography. But God, brothers and sisters, when you were in a desolate place, when you were in the middle of nowhere, when you were sent away, outcast, unloved, unwanted, nothing to give, nothing to offer, no good in yourself, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though you were dead. Dead men don't speak. Dead men don't act. You brought nothing, nothing to the table. God, who is rich in mercy because he loved you, made you alive in Christ Jesus. And not only that, he has raised us up with him into the heavens and to an inheritance in Christ so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through, the kindness, through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He saved you for no other reason than to display his immeasurable kindness to you. 
If you're sitting here today and you haven't put your faith in the Lord Jesus, let me be clear, the Lord's kindness is available to you today. You too can be made alive. Your sins can be forgiven. The Bible says that if you confess your sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you too can be saved. Look at Ephesians 2, 8. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift. It is God's gift, not from work so that no one can boast. Believers, some of us in this room are living boastful lives, maybe not with our mouths, but with our hearts. You think God owes you because of what you've done. You're in the word every day. You pray every day. You tithe. You serve at church. You may serve multiple times a month at the church. You're a good employee. You're a good neighbor. You don't think bad thoughts about people. You talk about Jesus to your friends. You talk about Jesus to your neighbors. You talk about Jesus to your co-workers. You're a deacon. Maybe you're an elder. Maybe you packed every possession you owned and moved out of a state you love to a place called Vermont to live your whole entire life. You gave up family and friends. You said, "Lord, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. You can't earn God's favor. You can't wrestle the blessing out of, God, out of God's hands because you already have it. He's already given it to you. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works so that anyone can boast. Believers, stop boasting in yourself. Look at Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on, and on earth is named. I pray that he might grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height, and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Nothing you do can earn God's favor on your life. All right, that was point number one. I've been doing this 28 minutes, settle in. And I'm just getting point number two is really quick. Nothing you can do can thwart God's purposes for your life. Nothing in Jacob's life went the way that Jacob planned it. I think the biblical narrative points to the fact that no one was truly for Jacob except maybe Rebekah, but I'm not even sure I'm convinced Rebekah was really for him. From his birth, he struggled for worth and meaning. He came out grasping onto his brother's heels. He never amounted to anything in the eyes of his father, Isaac. And when he, sent, when he was sent away penniless to find a wife, he was cheated time and time again by his con man of an uncle Laban. He chased for Rachel for seven years, only to find to wind up with her ugly sister Leah. His, life, his wife Rachel seemingly ran the sexual escapades of his love pentagon. He was threatened by his brother-in-laws. He was chased down by his uncle. He didn't live the life we expect a patriarch to live. And yet, through Jacob, all the nations of the earth are blessed because of Jesus. All the promises of God came true to Jacob. Think about Leah. Imagine that you make it in the Bible and your biblical legacy is that you're the older, ugly sister. 
Imagine the humiliation the night your father comes into your tent and says, hey, we're going to dress you up and we're going to trick Jacob because honestly, there's no hope for you. And I'm going to look like a fool if we marry Rachel before we marry you. And yet, Leah gives birth to Levi and to Judah. From Levi comes the entire line of Old Testament priests, including Moses and his brother Aaron. And I can do you one better. Through Judah comes David and later Jesus the Messiah. Over the course of these three chapters in Genesis, God is working out his plan in Jacob's life. We see that through real tragedy and shame, mistakes and misfortunes, sin and rebellion. Believer, God is working out his plan in your life too. Turn to Romans 8.28. It says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who were called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Moments after meeting with God at Bethel, Jacob thought his life was fixed. When he meets Rachel and he bursts into, th- into tears, he thinks that life is golden. His life wasn't fixed, but the promises of God were fixed on his life. God was working all things for his, uh, in his life out for his good. He was conforming Jacob into the image of his son, though Jacob didn't know who that was. And God is doing the same for you. Your life isn't golden. You know that. For God to work all things together for good doesn't mean that he's working all things out to be easy. You and I both know that. Some of you are facing real hardship and tragedy. And let me just say as a side note that this isn't an excuse to let sin run rampant in your life. Yes, God takes that which the enemy means for evil and works it for good. But, but don't miss out that Paul is saying here that Jesus is conforming you into his image so that you will be like him. Tragedy in life will constantly get it in the way. But don't pursue sin. Allow the Lord to conform, to conform you into the image of his son. Many of you, most of you probably know that last November, November my dad died after a seven-month battle with cancer. Three months into his diagnosis, Amanda packed up our things and we moved here to Vermont. It was a year ago this weekend that everything just kind of went downhill. My dad went into the hospital and he only came out to be put on hospice for a week. Believer, life isn't easy. Many of you are walking or have walked or will walk through very similar things, whether that's death or sickness or any other tragedy or trauma that we could come up with. But here's the thing. God is weaving his purposes into your life. In the uneasiness and the mess, God is working out his purposes. 
when it seems like hope is lost, when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, when your life is consumed with questions and not a lot of answers, he is conforming you into the image of his son through the trials of your life. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all as a sacrifice for the sins that you and I committed. How will he not also with him grant us everything? He will. He will grant us everything. Not here on earth in this life, but a day is coming when you will have all the inheritance promised to Jesus. You will be granted everything. Brothers and sisters, the trials of this life do not compare with the glory to be revealed to us. Trust today that God is weaving good in your life and believe that the life to come in eternity is better than the life you have today. Nothing you do or experience will thwart the purposes of God in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Jacob in which we can identify that we too are living in sin, that we too have not uh, done everything that we planned to do, but that you are working out your purposes in our life. We thank you that we cannot earn your favor, but that you have freely given it to us through the blood of Jesus, that you have saved us from our sins and made us right with you. Father, we pray that we would stop trying to wrestle the blessings of life out of your hands, that we would praise you that they exist in our life, that you would show us. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes like you opened Jacob's eyes that night in the middle of nowhere, that we would see you working in all things. Father, we pray that when our heads are drooped in the reality of life and the tragedies of our life and the trials of our life, that you would lift them up, that we would look at you and we would know that you are creating in us an eternal weight of glory. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.